Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Michael Berg, and I'm with Wade Johnston. We are in our studio here on the campus of Wisconsin Lutheran College during our Christmas break, uh, pumping out a couple uh, episodes that hopefully you'll enjoy. Our last episode was on the Sinclair Lewis book, It Can't Happen Here, written in 1935, about how um, as fascism was growing in Europe, uh, Americans said, well, that can never happen here. And then in this, uh, uh, dystopia is maybe not the right word, but in his dystopian novel, it does happen, right? right. And, and those are the warnings that he um, that he gives out in that book. And um, if you haven't listened to it, I thought it was a fun conversation. Our second book, which actually is going to have some parallels, although it's a completely different uh, topic, is Tom Nichols' The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. And so unlike Sinclair Lewis, this is written um, in our modern day 2016, I want to say, something like that. Not from an author like Sinclair Lewis, um, but a person who has been as a professor, but also has in, has spent his life um, in what we say political science. Actually, was in uh, um, uh, an aide to into the U.S. Senate, um, foreign policy and foreign international policy. security affairs. And Tom Nichols, Sinclair Lewis would probably be left of center. I would guess that Tom Nichols would be right of center on certain. That's things. the impression I got. Yeah. And so, but they do. There are some parallels, even though there is a time gap. Um, there's a, a vocational gap and maybe even a political gap between the two authors. There are a couple things that uh, will will cross over. So the death of expertise, that is going to be our topic for today. Uh, just as a reminder, we are part of the 1517 um, uh, podcast network. Please go to 1517.org. Do yourself a favor there. There's a bunch of stuff. They publish books. They have blogs. They have classes that you can take online for free. Free classes from uh, le- Lectures on things like apologetics. Um, and I think they have one on Galatians. Is that right? Yep. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff there. Uh, and, and if you feel uh, the, uh, the spirit to uh, put your money where... Um, um, your heart is, you can certainly uh, donate to 1517. They do a lot of great stuff as a, as a nonprofit. And they've been good to us here at Let the Bird Fly. Please, if you're listening to us, we would, on a regular basis, please like us, share us, um, uh, subscribe. subscribe so that we can uh, get more downloads, not for our ego, but um, so that we get higher up on the list on all these podcatching kind of things and we can... Uh, have a bigger audience because I think we and 1517 are a little bit unique. We're not trying to do the political right thing or the political left thing. We're not trying to do the chicken soup for your soul kind of thing. We're trying to ground ourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the freedom that he affords for us for all eternity from sin and death, but also here uh, as we live in the church militant, uh, enjoying uh, a world given back to us, but also... um, being promoted in our vocations, whatever they are, to, to love our neighbor and to think with nuance. And it's fun. It's good stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, if you, in short, if you think that the conversations we have would be helpful for people who want to understand Christianity better, or maybe Christians who um, are struggling in their current setting, um, or they want to dig deeper into theology, or maybe they're getting burnt out on theology, 
and they go and they're Googling theology or they're Googling even something that might come up like politics, history, whatever. Um, we have a lot of keywords that, that we're able to plug into things. If you think that some of the conversations we've had might be helpful to people, that's our main concern. We don't make any more money or less money um, if we have more downloads or less. How it's much money do we zero. make, Mike? It's yeah, always we always make zero. zero. That's the bottom line. Um, but if you think <clears throat> there's something helpful about the freedom of the gospel and vocation, um, that's our big concern is if you've ever gone on YouTube or into these podcatchers or iTunes and you do a search, you're looking for something new, <clears throat> you know how much is out there that in the end could actually be harmful, whether it's a new legalism or it's false teaching or it's a... <clears throat> Just so shallow that you people right. don't even want to bother with Christianity. And Colossians type stuff, whether it be all the... the the ancient uh, um, issues uh, in our own day, um, subscribing and sharing helps uh, us, it be more likely they find us um, when they're looking for someone. And so maybe that soul who's been beaten down um, in their confession of the faith um, and needs the gospel, or maybe that person who's just somewhat interested in Christianity, um, that hopefully we can actually, um, whether they, ex they uh, end up accepting it or not, um, and I don't mean that in an Arminian sense, um, expose them to real Christianity and just not, um, not just moral uh, therapeutic deism. So, Excellent. Um, so before we get into our main topic, we'll have our disclaimer. The show doesn't speak for our churches or church bodies or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We'll be thinking out loud a lot, so approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you are just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. Topic you might have noticed uh, with the last episode um, on uh, it can't happen here and now with this episode on the death of expertise we are skipping the free for all uh, we've mentioned previously we might do that sometimes um, the free for all to be honest for us is the most fun when we have Ben or Peter here or we have guests uh, here in the studio so we're gonna jump right into the main topic the thought is that might make for a shorter episode but we found that's not always <laughs> true um, but it does, does at least give us a little more time to talk about the the main topic. Our main topic today, then, is the book by Tom Nichols, The Death of Expertise, That Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. Um, and a little background of um, why we're looking at this book, uh, Mike and I are both reading it because of a committee we're on at the college, but it's a book I had suggested that we read a while back. Um, it's a book that I used for my um, New Christ and Culture course at the college this semester. How'd you students like his rant, Surprisingly, it was his actually, rant on the uh, Current college. It students. was a lot of students said it was their favorite book, Good. which surprised me because he does um, kind of take it to colleges and college students somewhat hard uh, in one chapter. But to give you a sense for the book, um, just to look at the table of contents to give you the chapters. There's the introduction, then there's uh, experts and citizens, 
how conversation became exhausting, higher education, the customer is always right, and that's the chapter Mike's referencing. Um, Four is let me Google that for you, how unlimited information is making us dumber. Five is the new, new journalism and lots of it. Six, when the experts are wrong. And then finally, the conclusion, (coughs) experts in democracy. And to give just a, a general sense for the book, I would say there's two key arguments throughout the book. Um, the first is that, um, I don't want to generalize, but I think we can somewhat fairly say almost everyone thinks they're an expert in 2019. Uh, we have Google, we have WebMD, we have uh, Wikipedia, we have YouTube videos. Um, you know, you want to fix something, you're going to go on YouTube instead of hiring the plumber. Um, and as I've learned sometimes in the past, uh, that's not the best move. I respect the vocation of a plumber. Right. Um, and then the flip side of that is that experts actually have a responsibility uh, to the public. Um, the second prong of his argument then would be experts have withdrawn a little bit into their specializations and into the ivory tower so that we don't have, as we used to have more so in the past, public intellectuals, um, intellectuals who are engaging the public um, in meaningful uh so not necessarily entirely dumbed down, but in meaningful and yet accessible to the, the academic laity um, forms and ways uh, to help um, bolster democracy. And democracy is really what undergirds the whole book. If we're going to be a functional democracy, um, he sees uh, a need first for all of us um, to recognize our own limitations. Even experts are not experts in everything. Um, This is why when you go to the hospital, the orthopedic doctor isn't doing everything at the hospital because the orthopedic doctor knows bones. Um, The same as the internalist is not going to do dermatology. Um, So the the need for all of us to recognize our limitations so that we will seek out experts on important topics. Um, And then secondly, um, in a democracy, if we're going to be well-informed, we need experts who are using their gifts. And these gifts are oftentimes um, gifts that were cultivated um, with the support of the public, right? When we think of university systems in America, um, public universities are public supported. And historically, these universities did research and they um, they did produce things for the public that were meaningful. Uh, and so um, that, that, that the expert as well is going to not just retreat and write for journals that 20 other people will read, and let's be honest, that's a sad truth um, when you get to many specializations, um, but but actively engage with the public as well. Um, I'll let you jump in with anything you have, Mike. If you don't think that's a fair summary, feel free oh, no, to correct that's, me. That's too. a good summary. Um, I, I would say, you know, this is a really good book um, that I think everybody should, should, our listeners could very easily get and read and very, he's an easy read. Right? And if you're going to pick either one book it can't happen here or death of expertise i would say pick death up of, death of expertise yeah. and it's there's enough stories in there to keep uh people activated um and and actively reading it and wanting to pick it back up um it's going to be a rant a little bit mm-hmm. and and he does and students did point that out yeah. and he does even in i think the four to the uh to the paperback. I see you have the hard copy of the paperback. I don't know if this was the same uh, edition or not, but no, I, I'm guessing you have an, I got this two. is as an intro, not a forward. Yeah. So I think preface the preface to the paperback edition, yeah. he admits, listen, this is a little bit of an old man 
get off my lawn kind of thing. At the same time, it needs to be said, right? And so, uh, if you're an older sometimes get off my lawn has to be said, <laughs> right? If you're uh, if you are uh, an older person looking at the world and being like, "What the hell's going on?" You'll enjoy this, but you will also be cut, right? This is I, I like it to a preacher who has not let anybody in the pews get away. Yeah, and it's not I, a theological book, but if we're going to make a comparison, comparison, yeah. And so he. Uh, uh, there's some things that I would say, and we'll get later in the discussion. I wish he would have gone down this. Not that I would disagree with him, but I wish there was he would have added a caveat or anything like that. Um, I tend to. I came to this book and started reading it, and it cut me a little bit because I tend to be on the side the experts have failed us, and I do realize that there's a group of people out there who. Um, well, you know, as a pastor, as a teacher, you know, the the student, the parishioner has no time to listen to you, even though, you know, also I'm a parent. Right. And so I, I didn't really appreciate that side where where it's not just that I'm ignorant. It's not even that I'm OK with my ignorance. I'm proud of my ignorance to the point where I don't even know that I'm ignorant anymore. And, we, and that's it, a problem for society. Yeah. And this book doesn't address the church, but I think it's an interesting book um, for even as we consider the church as well, um, because the church uh, in many ways can fail to appreciate its experts, and its experts can get frustrated and um, and not address the church as, as much mm-hmm. as they could. Um, I mean, anyone and who yet can the come out of experts can say some pretty stupid things. Yeah, right. I mean, anyone who has come out of synodical conference Lutheranism knows um, that we have our own um, anti-intellectual phases of history, and not all of them ones that I would entirely fault us for. Um, there were times in our own Wisconsin synod history where some of the theological liberalism did come from people who had gone and done PhDs mm-hmm. or gone and done them in Europe. Um, so that for a while there was a skepticism of a PhD. Um, and uh, I mean, with Missouri, with the battle for the Bible, I think we saw a similar thing. Um, but those of us who are pastors have had experiences where our lay people, um, without even blushing, um, will be ready to tell us all about Christianity mm-hmm. um, without a an appreciation at all for the education that has gone into um, being a pastor historically in Lutheranism. This is eight years of education, sometimes 12. Um, that being said, we also have pastors are probably all guilty of trying to fall back on our credentials mm-hmm. before <clears throat> and not meaningfully engage the laity rather than using our expertise to give them solid food. Sometimes we've simply fallen back on our call sheet and our diplomas. Mm-hmm. And so I think we... Um, and laity have probably most have had the experience of pontificating when they ought not, mm-hmm. but also of being shut down at some point. So I think even in the church, we can identify with this. Um, and so I think it's helpful for the, the Christian can make his or her own applications. Yeah. And it, it, for the church, it could be very egalitarian. Everybody, you know, the pastor is just the guy we choose to do that because right. somebody has got to be in charge. And that's just so foreign to the Bible and to and to Lutheran, Lutheran theology. Sola it's, Scriptura does not mean we're all experts. We read the the yeah. Bible with the church historical, um, and I mean, the early Lutherans right away are starting um, 
to prepare people to be educated clergymen. Yeah. And 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 the so it's very American, is what it is. I mean, it's and right. we 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 conflate the two a lot. Where we go, this is this is Lutheran conservative Christianity. You go, no, that's actually just flat out American. And we need to be able to to distinguish the the two. I think it's very vocational too. I writing some stuff on vocation and make make the point that everybody can talk shop. I don't care what you do. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't care. It could be the lowest job in the world that everybody else thinks is just uh, you know what what uh, the uneducated masses. That's that's the only thing that they can do. They can talk shop and they are an expertise in their field and 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 i really like what you brought up about you know the the early reformation too is there was a responsibility for the princes there was a responsibility for the theologians and all of those were public figures all of those had a responsibility to everybody and um that's not really that the neighbor aspect is not really being played out perhaps today as it should be that an expert is to, if they're going to put something out, you better darn well have thought about this. And to lift up the, uh, the masses rather than talk down upon them. And when you talk down upon them, um, there is going to be a distrust. There is going to be, um, there's going to be, as we talked about in our previous podcast, maybe even a settling of scores, a, a bad populism kind of, uh, of thought. And, uh, the elites, Nichols talks a lot about that, the, 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 just those elites. And so that I can dismiss them. And I think that can be very, very, very conservative. I think both of you and I grew up in, you know, lower middle class, uh, family situations going through similar school situations where it was cool to be dumb. It was cool to be low class. It was, it was cool to, uh, that's a regular guy you'd have a beer with and you, in your own way of self-justifying yourself, you would like to be the expert and the elite because, but because you can't get there, you bring down the expert yeah. and elite as stupid, but there can be also a, from a more liberal point of view, um, you know, the, the attack on truth and on knowledge can lead to, um, I'm just kind of my own libertine kind of, I just find out my own truth and I end up saying, I'm going to pick point. I'm going to, I'm going to leads to a sort of nihilism. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to, to get there, I'm going to go find the doctor that's going to tell me this, or I'm going to find the philosopher that is going to lead to my conclusion. I want to fight against the elites, the male, white, conservative, church, government, business, all that kind of stuff. And you or can, the liberal <clears throat> feminist. Right. Um, this is socialist. This, this kind of sin. And this is not, is not, uh, exclusive to one party or the other. And you see constant bad philosophy, constant bad science. He, he goes after the, the anti-vaxxers over and over again <laughs> as the prime example for we, don't want to listen to the elite and to the experts and we don't think we have to. And if they disagree with us, then the trump card in the argument is you're just a, an elitist and an expert 
and you don't know actually what you're talking about because you're not a regular person. And I do think uh, something you brought out, Mike, that I just want to hit on a little bit more that's valuable is is that expertise is not limited to academia. I mean, I think this is something that we get wrong often. Um, as someone who would consider himself fairly well educated, no, I didn't go to an Ivy League school at any point, um, but three master's degrees and a, um, a joint PhD, which means I had to do my, my grad work at two schools. Um, I feel like I've been exposed to, in a, doing interdisciplinary work, I've been exposed to a fair amount, um, but I've been exposed to a fair amount of um, stuff within academia. I will tell you, I find myself all the time um, feeling lost in conversations with experts, whether that be the plumber who's going to have to fix my kitchen sink for me at some point, uh, the mechanic when I go in and my, I say my car is making a noise and then I sound like when you were a kid and you'd pull that string on that thing and says, a cow says, move. <laughs> and I'd be like, my car says, <laughs> it's kind of like that. Um, or... Uh, <clears throat> Um, whether it be outside my field, even in academia. Um, Every field has its own language. When I, when cadence, I go to the yeah. doctor and the doctor says, oh, it's this. And I don't want to say, <clears throat> I have no idea what that is. Um, I mean, for the longest time, I, I've always mixed up benign and malignant. And I would have members <laughs> who say, oh, the test came back and it's benign. And I think they expected me to be like all excited. Yeah. But I was like, I didn't really know which was which, so I was waiting to see their reaction before I was like, oh, okay, good. Now, um, that, that one's embarrassing because you should just look at the beginning of the word, good or bad. I know, but it, it just gets me. <laughs> um, but think of your own vocations and what you do. There are things you're expert in. There are things in my house that I'm expert in or my wife is expert in where um, the internet goes down and she says, we can't get the internet working. I said, well, didn't you do this? Mm-hmm. Because that's kind of my realm that I do. Or, um, you know, I'm looking for something and I go, I can't find this thing anywhere. And my wife says, it's in this cabinet in this place. Um, so I, I don't want us to, to read this as only being expertise within academia too. Although the book, I would say for the most part, is going to focus on experts as being intellectuals. Mm-hmm. Um, Public intellectuals. Right. Yeah. Or people who are intellectuals that he thinks should be more public intellectuals. And I will say that something that comes out for me in the book, um, when I think about it through a theological lens, is really the intellectual who doesn't want to be a public intellectual mm-hmm. really doesn't appreciate his own field. Yeah. Right? Um, really doesn't see the value in what cheer he does. Um because if you do, you would want the public to have a deeper understanding of that, yeah. if that makes yeah. sense. And maybe just to give some color. some uh, And to go to the anti-vaxxer thing real quick, um, he will say part of the problem with that, too, is not only that people have spread fake news or misinformation, but that oftentimes with things like vaccines or others, the medical community might just say, okay, this is what we do now. Mm-hmm. But when you don't explain it and make mm-hmm. your case in a publicly accessible way, um, you do leave people to worry about things. Yeah. And maybe just to give some color to what we're talking about, you know, he'll talk about, uh, okay, you, you go to a coffee shop. He didn't use this example, but you go to a coffee shop and somebody's going to be pontificating about uh, the, the Ukraine. And then if you put a map out there, what are the chances they know where the Ukraine is? Right. Right. That kind of stuff. Or, and then various uh, journalists who maybe are, you know, uh, you're going to be embedded in Afghanistan for two weeks. Um, and they go, well, it's only two weeks. I'm not going to really do my research on the actual yeah. 
We see this with religious to. reporting all the time, where people do a story on religion, and then they'll have something about um, Christmas or Easter, and they don't mean it to be wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I remember, that, what was it, last year or the year before, there was some major paper that had the, the author made the mistake of saying, on Easter, Christ ascended to right. heaven. Well, a right. Christian reads that and goes, what? That has yep. its own day. Yep. Um, but, you know, it doesn't just have to be foreign reporting. Right. And so uh, there's all sorts of examples, that, that, which has made the fun, made the book fun because you're like, oh, those people are idiots, right? You know, uh, there's all these kind of goofy situations where uh, things things went terribly wrong, either in the media, media or, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, some, some kind of foreign policy type type thing. And so the book's full of that kind of stuff. And those are examples that we're talking about here. Um, he does go after, okay, here's technology. Um, you get are getting more information, but that's not necessarily true. And the more information you get, the information you know, you know less. And he r rightly pointed out, this is nothing new. I mean, we I constantly go back. I think it was Plato who worried about the printed book, right? Because you're not going to memorize stuff anymore. A lot and of so, the early Greek philosophers. Yeah. So more information, whether it be through radio, whether it be through television, whether it be through whatever, is going to mean you know the information you know less and less. And then you're not be, to be, then you have a less, your ability is lessened to be discerning about the information that comes your way. And then it becomes, here's all these experts. They seem to say all the different things and you end up picking the one you like, or the picking the one that uh, backs up what you already believe. So you have confirmation bias. Right. You have all of these different things. But I liked him, him. He was pretty good about pointing out. I thought in the beginning, that's not technology's problem. This is a this is a human problem. Right. This is a human problem. And I've always thought that that technology, just in general in history, has never been the driving force. It's kind of like gasoline on a fire. Right. Like we were jerks and the Internet just poured gasoline on the fire. It's not like we were nice and then the Internet came and right. then we were jerks. And so to blame technology or even, you know, any kind of those hard things like statesmanship and whatever, uh, there's there's a whole spiritual side that's going on here. And so I appreciate it. I appreciate what he said there. Um, Why don't we maybe like. Uh, well, first, I see you have bullet point. Is that these are some of the things that I would. I would like him to talk about more, so we can put that at the end. Okay. Why don't we maybe um, briefly walk through the chapters, sure. if that's all right? No, that'd be helpful. Um, and so if we take first chapter one, experts and citizens, um, anything that stood out to you from, from that chapter? Um, I can't remember. It was a long time I read that. Um, well, I'll, I'll throw yeah, out a quote maybe, it. and then um, a couple passages. Um, is... Uh, so on page 35 in the, the hardcover, um, two things he notes about um, expertise that are important that maybe we, uh, all of us as lay people in whatever field, and we're all lay people in hundreds of fields, mm -hmm. um, would be first, another um, mark of true experts is their acceptance of evaluation and correction by others. Um, and I think that's interesting because often, and we all will say we're an expert on something, meaning we've read a fair amount about it. I, I see this all the time um, when people will say, yeah, so-and-so is an expert on history. And what they mean is that person likes to read history books in the History Channel, and and that's great. And, and sometimes someone knows a lot of dates and events, but what they fail to understand that a big part of the historical field, too, is to be able to um, propose a narrative 
um, that takes into place, you know, the lacunae, the gaps, mm-hmm. and then get criticized for it, mm-hmm. right? To 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 um, yeah, that's, to be that's able to right. shape that, it. That chapter is like big on peer review yep. journals, and that's where let me get these two other. Yeah. He says this self policing is central to the concept of professionalism. It's another and is another way how we can identify experts. And I think that's important for just all of us of anything we want to be expert in to understand that historically expertise comes with a willingness to be criticized and proven wrong. Expertise is not the beginning point for shutting down conversation. And then finally on page 37, he says, and while there are self-trained experts, they are rare exceptions. More common are the people seeking quick entry into complicated fields, but who have no idea how poor their efforts are. And I think this is something that um, kind of the democratizing power of the internet has done. And here I don't mean democratizing in a necessarily an inherently good way, or although not necessarily bad, um, is that it has become... Think Wikipedia, everybody Credentials say, have yeah. become way more... Think of all the people doing weddings now because they go online and get a certificate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so an idea of if you truly want to be expert in a field, and even if you want to be um, an expert who's self-taught... Uh, an autodidact, um, that's cool, but it involves a recognition that you always need to be willing to learn and correct um, your views of things. You know, I, one of the, I went to back to school for three reasons as I was a pastor for a few years. Reason number one was guilt. I'll try to redeem myself in a non-theological way for being a poor student. Two was I needed, I Hit, I was getting close to 30, and it was kind of like a midlife crisis. I needed to do something. I needed to be challenged. But the main reason was I had a gap in my knowledge, and it usually had to do with philosophy. That's where I got more into apologetics. And I tried to read myself into it, and I realized I needed a teacher. Yeah. I needed a teacher. And I, I think that's what he's kind of after. And then now that I'm on the other side of it, um, the peer review kind of thing is, yeah, you know, why are you writing to, are you doing this for yourself? Are you doing it for the public good? And if you really are going to do it for the public good and not just for yourself, then you should be willing to be criticized. And I think, um, I remember Craig Parton coming and speaking in the seminary once and saying, one of the biggest things you can provide to your lay people is your library. Mm-hmm. And what he meant by that is as pastors, we should keep reading. We should be knowledgeable about the resources out there. We should be able to point people to stuff. And I think one of the things that drove me to want to study more was um, we all know the temptation, those of us who are in the ministry, to get out of seminary and our seminary education ends there. Mm-hmm. The ironic thing is we will fault our confirmands when that happens when our confirmands. <laughs> um, but then we can do the same thing. And I did find sometimes my library was the library I came out of seminary with. My engagement with theology was the engagement I came out of seminary with. Um, yes, I was still doing active Bible study and exegesis for preaching, but even my preaching was getting somewhat drier mm-hmm. because <clears throat> I wasn't doing as much otherwise outside of that. And I think it's a good reminder for those of us, whether we're in the parish or academia, um, glance over our library. Ask, what did I read this year? <clears throat> what did I engage with? Did I read anything fiction? Mm-hmm. Am I reading any newspapers or journals? Um <clears throat> Have I been reading things to de- – I mean, I think one of the real strengths of our seminary now is the Grow in Grace program or other things where they really are emphasizing, like, here's continuing education. Mm-hmm. You've gotten out in the parish. Stay active because you'll easily plateau. 
if you want to be a theological expert and all of us who come out want to be thought of that way in our parish, are you staying up in your field and are you willing to challenge? Sometimes you might know the right answer, but sometimes you have a very simplistic way of getting there. Are you willing to challenge yourself so that you can better serve your people who are being challenged? And we've said this before in the I know I have that. When what I got stale was one of two reasons in the, in the pulpit in the classroom as a parish pastor. One was I didn't do my text study. The other one is I realized that I hadn't read any poetry, a novel, a newspaper, or whatever. That makes you dull. <laughs> that is what makes you dull and uninformed. And you'll lose your own passion. And then you're in a bad cycle when your people don't have passion, you don't have passion. And this is when churches start to go crumble, crumble, crumble. And it's not because of the, you know, you didn't have the latest program or whatever. It's because you didn't have the passion for hard work and hard work and passion are the two things that can overcome uh, quite, a, quite a few deficiencies. And if your people don't feel like pastor is the one you can go to for a, a meaty and helpful answer, they're going to go somewhere else. And I've heard that more and more now uh, from, from laity who, you know, going around to different churches and, and doing Bible classes has been fun for me. And, um, to kind of say, like, it's getting better. Our Bible classes overall the last whatever years have been getting better. And that's what I hear, too. Because it used to be just, well, when we were taught, we're like, make sure you don't, this is egalitarian. Don't make sure you, they think that you're smarter than them. Make sure don't lose them. Don't be confusing. Try to simplify it. And the average thoughtful Christians be like, I don't want to waste my time on this, you know, and certainly the skeptic's not going to be impressed when there's, right. when this robust, beautiful Christian worldview is, is down to a very kind of cheesy, corny message. And so uh, for the church, this ha I think has, boy, this has, this is really important, I think, anyway. Anyway, the next chapter is more personal, kind of like, uh, you know, this is confirmation bias. This is your stereotypes, your generalizations. You want to comment on that? Well, I think here, because you've mentioned it a couple times, why don't you take up, Mike, if you don't mind, um, what is confirmation bias? And I think it's one of the probably top five themes that runs throughout the book. What is confirmation bias and why does he see it as being so dangerous? And we're all guilty of it, right? So I look at... Well, it's like original sin. Yeah. Um, uh, you see a news item... Um, or an opinion in a newspaper or whatever, and you are going to say, um, you're going to twist that in your own mind to be evidence for your um, conclusion that you've already made, an a priori conclusion. So I think this is dangerous in two, two ways, or at least it gets played out in two ways. One is I take something, a news event, and I'll give these examples at Kavanaugh uh, hearing um, with uh, Dr. Ford and, and for Kavanaugh to be the uh, uh, Supreme Court Justice and talking to people and I would listen to something and I listened it through my experience and I said, that's terrible and here's why. And then the next person can come and say, that's terrible for a completely different reason. And I looked at that person and here's why it gets played out and why it's so dangerous. And I looked at that person and I said, that person has confirmation bias. Therefore, they are not um, they are not a person that I should listen to anymore. So first of all, I do it to myself where I say, yeah, obviously this is, this is exactly the way it should be. 
this is evidence for my a priori uh, conviction. And then I turn it around and I say that person's whole intellectual life, that they're, everything that they have said, everything that they have did, everything they did is totally tainted by a confirmation bias. They are unable to see clearly, right? And so I think that's the two ways where it becomes super, super dangerous. The, um, and I think, and we won't get too much into this now because it'll come up in a later chapter, but one of the things that plays along with that then is we now ourselves with um, new media and the internet can find all sorts of things to confirm our positions mm -hmm. and all sorts of people to confirm them. Um, and then secondly, um, the way we find these things online now has algorithms that feeds us what it knows we want to see, mm -hmm. what will confirm those things. So when I do a Google search of something, and Mike does, we don't get the exact same results. Um, based on what we've searched in the past, it's going to give us um, slightly different results in certain cases. And so... Um, <clears throat> And then even more on social media, it knows what you like, what you share. Mm -hmm. It's going to be giving you information that's only going to confirm what you already think. And so in many ways, while we have access to more information, we almost have less access mm -hmm. to information that will challenge um, what we assume to be true. Um, you want to talk a little bit about... This would oh. be a great business, you and I. We would get an algorithm that would say... We'll listen to everything that you have. We'll give you what you want, but then we'll we'll purposely give you a competing thing. Like you're like, oh, I like Coke. I want to buy a bunch of Coke. And then all of a sudden, yeah, there'll be some Coke ads. And then all of a sudden, Mountain Dew's going to come at you. Uh, or just one that says, you know what? Once a month, we're going to give you five things that you should read based uh -huh. on what you've been reading to give you the opposite point of view. Five thoughtful pieces to challenge what you hold. We shouldn't put this on air. This is a good idea. Someone's going to yeah. steal it. Neither of us know how to do anything with the internet, though. We have no follow-through, so... Right. Whoever has this idea, go for it. Just, you know, we don't, we don't want any money. Just give us a little, you know, uh, hat, hat tip. Uh, something else that comes out in this early part, and I think that we should bring up, you want to briefly mention the Dunning-Kruger effect, Mike? Um, I don't it's one of my favorites. The yeah, students love this, too. Um, I, you better do it, because I... I'm, Probably would, unless I looked at it real quick, I'd probably the, uh, ruin it. The dumber you are, that's right. <laughs> or, or we could say the less informed. Maybe you're not. Um, maybe you're not that's right, that's stupid. Right. The more you are going to have this confirmation bias. The more confident yeah. you are in your position, and they've actually <laughs> studied this, um, and it's demonstrable um, that the less informed you are, or the dumber you are about something, the more confident you are in asserting yourself. And I will say. Um, so I'll say happy holidays. The holidays are over now, probably as you're listening to this, but you probably had this confirmed in some of your conversations <laughs> with family and friends. Yes, this is true. Um, I get one example that pops in my mind right now is don't you, use me is you and the American league designated hitter, right? That's not like the less more informed. The more confident you are so confident in that. And you, it's like talking to a wall. Like you don't even, you don't, you're so, so you're open to the designated hitter. No, I'm not. Okay. Um, <laughs> But I think that's important to keep in mind. And I have to say that that one cut me to the heart because I am the dumb person on a lot of things. And I do think I present myself yeah. most confidently when I'm least secure in the topic or my position. And what's really good about this, this book, even though he doesn't go this way because it's a secular book, but I'm guessing both of you when you're reading this were like, 
this is the attempt of self-justification. Right. And the, and the more I put myself into this system of law where I, I, don't, I don't like those experts because I'm not an expert, so I'm going to pretend ex- you're in this a righteousness by law system. And exactly more- to get to that, he says, many Americans now hear you're wrong as you're stupid. Yep. And what is that? Um, but that's me in my self-justification. Mm-hmm. Hearing you're wrong hurts my own identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not, it's not just about feelings. It's about something deeper. And we would agree that it is our constant attempt to justify ourselves before men and whether we admit it or not before God. And uh, all of those things I can, we can talk about the psychology of confirmation bias. We can talk about the technology uh, advances and, and how that makes things more difficult to be um, a little bit nuanced. We can talk about politics. We can talk about all of that. But from a theological perspective, it really comes down to the two kinds of righteousness. And I'm stuck in this righteousness uh, uh, by law. And I need to find value. I need to be right. I need to be an expert. And if that means bringing down somebody else, if that means um, ignoring expert advice, then that's what I'll do. And the crazier I get into this system or the deeper I get into the system, the crazier I'll be. Right. And I will hold on to being right um, even when so much evidence points the other way. Um, and the easy way to trump, to play the trump card in all of these is to say that person is, um, you know, is taken by some conspiracy theory or that person is, um, you know, an elite who doesn't know my, my job. That person, that person is a ad. We should have this game too. just add race, any race you want, any gender you want, any income you want and say that person is a bop, 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 bop. Therefore they have no idea. Yeah, And it's not based on knowledge. It's based on much more of experience, which is not necessarily, those things aren't, aren't, um, experience is helpful, exclusive. but it's also limiting. It, it's, those are not mutually exclusive. Um, and I see this, this ends up with the outrage that we have, right? Where I, I'm not going to listen to somebody. And then he goes into that chapter too about, and that's why the chapter once again is entitled "How Conversation Became Exhausting." Yeah, and then and then add the extreme of that, which is conspiracy theories. Which, if you are a conspiracy theorist about a particular thing, which I am about a lot of things, I'll admit. I mean, you know, some are ridiculous, like f- flat Earth, but we all know that we didn't land on the moon. I mean, that's crazy, right? Right. Um, but once that person gives you evidence, but you're involved in a conspiracy this idea of a conspiracy theory, you go, well, of course that's what you're going to say. And it ends all conversation. Right. Um, Maybe why don't we pick up then uh, higher ed, the customer is always right. Since you asked right away what my students thought of it and seemed a little surprised that they liked it, why don't you um, introduce us to that chapter a little bit, Mike, and and why you thought students might not like it. So so Tom Nichols is, uh, you know, had been an aide in the U.S. Senate, is an expert, we didn't do, expert in, Soviet Russia politics, that kind of stuff, and makes a good case about. I mean, you really got to be into. As a professor has taught, but he is also a professor, and so I think I felt like maybe it was because I'm a professor, but I kind of feel like chapter three because he's a professor was where he really let the guns blaze. He let the bird fly. He was, and not in a good way. He was, (laughs) he was kind of seemed kind of angry about this and hits on all of these. You know, uh, the the students um, who assume that they're going to get a good grade, 
uh, the students who want the best that there is. He goes after choosing the college for the experience. He's going after the administrators for allowing this to happen. Businessmen running an educational system, which anyone running a college today knows. Um, the more, a good way to go out of business is to not try to market yourself well. Yep. And, and they're stuck in this system. To just say we're a good education is not, not enough not good. And it's one of those things, this is the game, and so I don't blame them. At the same time, we, made the, we, we let this happen. Um, he'll also go after um, the, uh, those uh, stories about people, pro- students protesting, uh, recent ones at Yale and Missouri, where... Uh, an expert, i.e. a professor, says something they don't like, and they demand yep. that the person not only apologize, change, but even be fired. And it's the utter extreme of, I'm not going to listen to truth at all. But And the I, government just throwing money at education, yep. for instance, yep. um, any and anyone getting a student loan, whether or not it's in their best interest. Or, and, and everybody goes to college, and so everybody is... So that the college is chasing this money? And everybody is an expert, and nobody is an expert. And so it's, I don't think if he said so it. So that a college degree does not mean what it used to mean? It's a high school diploma, you know. And uh, and so he really hits all the things that we would go, yay. I did feel, and I'm wondering if your, if your students felt this way too, that he was a little light on the professors. He does say those professors shouldn't, you know, sneak away. I mean, they are public they should be out there fighting. They should right. be fighting for the truth. No, he, he seems to have sympathy with the professors. Yeah, he has definitely has a little bit more sympathy for professors, uh, more than I, I thought maybe he should have, because there are some silly things that professors say, and, and there are professors who incite this kind of, hey, whatever, whatever you want, whatever you want to say is going to be truth instead of actually uh, you know, teaching something. So... Uh, I'm, I'd be interested to see what you're, to hear from you what your students thought about this. No, I, I think um, the students received it a lot better than I thought they would, and I think that they saw, um, the same as we read the technology book, and a lot, a lot of students um, said after, yeah, I, I turned on on my phone that track hours of usage, mm-hmm. and I went, what am I doing on the phone for seven hours a day? <laughs> And then I, I said, don't worry, I won't turn mine on because I'm afraid of I'm, the same thing. I'm at 10. <laughs> right. Um, but I do think a lot of them recognized um, how colleges were marketed to them, what they looked for in a college, what college tours tend to focus on, um, and, the, uh, and also just in their college experience. Um, part of it is we've, we've had a, a very... Um, vociferous and active conversation about gen eds on our campus over the last few years um we had a new gen ed general general education credits yeah i'm I'm doing it myself outside of your um and i think we have a pretty good one that came through um but to be cognizant about of what is the what 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 does a college student need to be exposed to and to know um and to have that be bigger than simply their major um and uh and so I think students also are somewhat aware of that. Um, why am I taking these gen eds? And I think good gen eds are one of the most important parts of the, the college education because it's where a student can have the experience of they take a class that they're taking because they had to take it. But if it's done well, when they get done, they go, man, did I have some blind spots. Mm-hmm. And I would have just kept those blind spots if I just, you know, only focused on my major. <laughs> um 
But I think a lot of them especially just recognized um, how colleges were marketed to them as they were getting ready to go to college. Um, and that often, I mean, you look at rising college, costs of college, and it the, the charts go up with the amount of money that's been given in federal loans and funding. Um, the more money that's been thrown at students to go to college, the more expensive it's gotten. Why? Because they've become consumers and they want the experience. So you need the big rec center. You need a Starbucks on campus. You know, um, all these acts, you don't have dorms. You have apartments or whatever. You don't have a cafeteria. You have whatever. And, uh, and then also um, with the increased regulation, um, the amount of administration that I would say is even necessary. I think sometimes we bag on administrators and it's not always fair they're probably more under they're 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 more understaffed than we are. Right. It um the amount of stuff that they have to keep up on and report on um is insane. And so uh I think students recognize that and they um and even the idea that every college education is the same. I think people realize too that this is not necessarily um and that's not to say too well if you go to uh a Big Ten school instead of Ivy League, you're not getting the same experience. There's plenty of studies of the Ivy League now of great inflation and mm -hmm. um, limited experiences of the bubble that's created mm -hmm. there. Um, that just uh, college is not just college wherever you go or whatever you major in. Um, I think was something that they picked up on too. Yeah, uh, uh, that's good to hear that at least they were thoughtful about that kind of stuff. We we've talked a lot about higher ed though throughout the history of the podcast too. So maybe if we Move on. Move on. Um, Chapter four was let me Google that for you, how unlimited information is making us dumber. We kind of already talked I, about that, but what did you? I would just drive home with that, and I think this is one of the big chapters for the students, uh, is that we all now, because we have a wealth of information at our fingertips, um, feel emboldened in a way that is not necessarily commensurate with what information does for us. Um this is one place where I think it's important to understand, um, and I think especially for those um, who, uh, like Mike, are on the political right. Um, <laughs> writer than you. Writer than me, yeah. Uh, there's a, um, we have a, a Republican senator from Wisconsin <laughs> who has actually said, <clears throat> sorry, Peter, Peter likes to edit out the coughs. Mm -hmm. Um that we could do away with a lot of college and just have people watch documentaries. Mm -hmm. um, we sometimes conflate information with knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, information is not knowledge. Being Wisdom is not knowledge. Um, it's what you can do with it, right? How you can process it. And in some ways, we're so overwhelmed with information in our day that we are unable to actually use it well to construct meaningful narratives, um, to uh, analyze information. Um, and I think uh, that's a big part that comes out. Um, but most of us have had the experience, too, of you're not feeling well. You go on WebMD. Mm -hmm. You go into the doctor, and what do you do? You basically tell them what's wrong with right. you. Right? You've already got the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And then almost being offended when, uh, when she still wants to ask some questions mm -hmm. And maybe proposes it something different. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't go on WebMD as much anymore because it terrifies me. <laughs> because pretty soon I'm convinced I have cancer. Like Because almost anything can be a symptom of cancer. Um, and I'm a bit of a hypochondriac, which is why I don't go to the doctor all that often. Because I'm, I'm terrified of... 
um, beaten, diagnosed with something. I'd rather have the thing and not know it. If that, I mean, I would, I would honestly, I think, rather die young. Well, I'm, I'll, um, I'm a doctor. I'll take a look. Yeah, and uh, but um, but I do think uh, this is an important thing for us to understand. Information is not knowledge, and we this is something we see also theologically as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see it with Twitter theology all the time. People have access to a lot of resources, but they're they're not capable of reading those things contextually, of applying them well, of recognizing the original questions that led to those positions. Um, and uh, and so I, I think um, it's it's something to be aware of. Yeah, that was something that I struggled with this book a little bit, and it's I think a strength and a and a weakness if I can contradict myself that. We need experts, but sometimes an expert can get so into their own thing that they don't we- read widely, right? And so how do I, as a consumer of information, I even don't like that term, right? Just the term that we say, consumer of information. Um, you know, I want to be wi- widely read, and I want to do this research, and, and I shouldn't just trust the expert because the expert may have something wrong or whatever. And I just don't like the silo effect either, you know, so the danger right. is I don't want to just let the expert tell me what's up. I I, I do want to be well-rounded. Um, how do you balance that? That that becomes difficult for me. And I let me tell you one little story that, that's kind of stuck with me. First year of being a pastor, I uh, internet was a thing, of course, and stuff like that, but uh, we didn't have iPhones. It wasn't, I didn't, go, I still didn't go to, uh, websites for the variety, for the vast majority of information. And I grew up in a family where we had multiple newspapers coming in. And um, so, but out in the rural, the, the, the options weren't great. But the USA Today, you could get through the mail. And because I was in a small town and they would sort the mail by 8.30, I could go to, we didn't have, we had you had to go to the post office to get your mail. At 8.30, I could walk over and get my mail, and that would have today's USA Today, which is, you know, short little articles. They sometimes take the AP articles and, and condense them or whatever, but I like looking at the, you know, the, the box scores, let's say that. And every Friday, they would have a religion article, and they would have a guy from the left and a guy from the right, and they would debate something. And it was just so poorly done. As we've said before, you're not right. You're not even wrong. Like I could just so, and it dawned on me that I'm taking the rest of this newspaper. I'm an expert, quote unquote, an expert in theology. And I see that these guys are just don't have a clue. But I'm taking the rest of the newspaper as gospel truth because I assume the experts are there. Right. And so a part of me just does not want to listen to journalists and doesn't want to listen to these experts because I know how flawed it can be. At the same time, the flip side of that is when I'm the expert, (laughs) so-called, right, and nobody listens to me, that can be so frustrating. And that's what we get into the next chapter is the new journalism. And 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 I think one other quick thing with with Google, but also with social media, I sometimes... uh, get a kick out of a there will be some story nationally or whatever and, and someone on, on, on Twitter especially will say well if they really wanted an expert they should have interviewed so and so and what they mean is in their echo chamber mm-hmm. there is this person who says a lot of things they like who maybe 500 other people on Twitter know but to them that person has become 
so much of an expert because of their limited exposure to things, because they've created this small circle or echo chamber, uh, that I think that is, is something that um, Google and social media can do as well. Is at the time that same time that they're expanding our horizons, we have. I get stuff out of the Munich, Munich Digital Library all the time for 16th century manuscripts. It's also probably narrowed my exposure because what I'm seeing as far as who I um, interact with online or what I am reading, um, I can somehow, you know, become an expert in someone's mind for maybe 100 people, but I'm, I'm really, I'm so tone deaf to the broader mm -hmm. discussion that I just can't fathom that someone doesn't know who this person is. <clears throat> in the last instance, I saw it and I kind of chuckled. The person they named is actually someone I really respect who I do think um, has things to offer. But it's just like, really, dude, you think anybody's aware of that person on, on this whatever level of things? And so I think that that narrowing influence um, can be important. And I do think, too, I mean, even when we say expert, if someone were to ask me, Wade, what are you an expert on? Well, I could say, I would honestly say, I have a fair amount of knowledge of my minor fields for my PhD, which would be late antiquity, um, and then modern Germany um, in England. Um, I would say uh, I have a fair amount of uh, knowledge of um, intellectual history in general and the classes I teach. But if you really were going to press me, what can you actually say you're an expert on? I would say Matthias Flacius, during the Magdeburg years, um, <laughs> Formula of Conquered Controversies, and probably Late Luther. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the only place I could honestly say I've, in, I've involved myself in peer-reviewed things, um, and I have probably studied it more than most people who are not in that specialization. Yeah. And, and go along with that. that that's, there's not that many experts out there is what you're trying to get at, and that is not just peer review kind of things, but you can't just anoint somebody an expert. That's right. what you're getting at. Yep. And so, um, and we do that online all the time. Yeah, and uh, you can see this, and in that gets to the vaccinations and stuff. Yep. He, he mentions like Gwyneth Paltrow on something. Right. Well, why? Because Google's going to turn up what she says mm -hmm. because just the algorithms are going to put that right. in front of you. That's always bothered me too about uh, sports. Late night television, including like the Colbert Report and uh, 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 the Daily Show, um, and just celebrities in general, that they feel an obligation because they have been given a platform to speak on social issues. And <clears throat> I hate that. I'm like, I am not going to go to some athlete to, to give me the nuance I need for some whatever. But the backlash there is oh, you think you're better. Right. Or if it's, if it's a, some of a certain race or not race, then you're not, you know, you think you're better because you're, you're, pri you're privileged yeah. or whatever. And I go, no, because the person graduated high school and went to the minor leagues and now can hit home runs, that doesn't mean anything when it comes to politics. I'm sorry. And I think that's what he's trying to get after, um, that, that it's okay. You know, I don't like rank and promotion, and, you know, that kind of stuff. But it's important. Right. It's important. Mike says that because I'm up for ranking promotion. <laughs> I've been doing my binder. It's important that you have these kinds of levels. That this person, <laughs> that you do when you when you write a book, that on the back cover it says what you've done. It does right. matter, even though I find it a little distasteful. 
it does matter. Um, maybe to keep going so we don't go too long, um, to pick up, uh, and I think we won't have to take too long on this because we already hit on it, and we hit on it in somewhat uh, in the previous episode on um, It Can't Happen Here as well, but the new, new journalism and lots of it. Uh, Mike, your thoughts on what he has to say about journalism? I think he was really good about... Uh I wanted him, and this is my own echo chamber, I wanted him to come down a little bit harder, but I think he probably was pretty fair um, that uh, actually doing the work of a journalist, and, and it, a journalist should be an expert in journalism. You're not going to be an expert in the things that you report about, but you need to be able to ask the right questions. You need to be able to do the work and do the, the research, and that's my big when I was talking about the USA Today, that was my biggest criticism is, geez, I can't even trust. I wanted to throw the whole thing out because I can't trust anybody because I know that they are flawed on this and how can I uh, appreciate, how can I trust any other journalist as, as well? I did kind of like the idea too that, I think it was in this book that he mentioned, you actually don't need to, you know, be this celebrity personality kind of journalist he kind of almost favored one that high school diploma you just ask the questions yeah and you know that was kind of it almost was counterintuitive to his whole whole purpose of his book a journalist should be an expert in journalism but at the same time i get his biggest criticism of journalism is of course the entertainment and the celebrity journalists who are not could care less about the truth and here we read this book in Crazy and Culture right after we read World Without Mind, which in my mind is a phenomenal book. I really like that book, and I highly recommend it. Um, and World Without Mind unpacks that a lot more. Um, I would say if, you, if you're interested in this book, uh, a couple other good books to read would be The Shallows um, and then World Without Mind um, and then Team Human um, are ones that I read this summer that I really enjoyed as well. But World Without Mind is phenomenal on journalism and what's happened with that. So I, I would point people there if they maybe want more. Um, maybe, Mike, the last chapter, um, when the experts are wrong, and maybe here we can hit a little bit on the responsibilities of experts. And what does we all have seen experts. I don't know if I can eat eggs or not. Right? And he talks about <laughs> eggs. <coughs> are eggs bad for me? Are they good for me? Um, but I think this goes back to experts being peer-reviewed and being challenged, um, what it, what were your takeaways, if any, from the experts? Well, alone? you know that I am always going to see things through a vocational lens and that there's a vocation of journalists, there's a vocation of experts, and your neighbor is primary focus. And so you're not trying to get likes, you're not trying to get clicks, you're trying to do that. And I wish he was maybe a little bit harder on the, on the experts um, because I think that the responsibility is weighty. Uh, especially for journalists. And so, but I think he was fair to say, um, to point out some stories about how experts can be wrong. And when you do have such a, uh, such a responsibility, things can go very, very poorly in a society when the experts get something very, very wrong. And it's more than just, well, eggs. Although I'm sure there are some chicken... <laughs> farmers that took an economic hit you know right i mean it, but even it, though they're saying to the best of our knowledge right now yeah this is the case i mean when we were in high school and playing sports i'm guessing it was the same for you before a game we were told to carb up yeah and carbs were the thing if yeah. you were in athletics you were carbon all the time yeah. and now it's like 
protein and right. car- protein good, carbs bad. Yeah. But that was what was accessible at the time in in carefully done studies. And I think, <clears throat> and I. I but experts do have to own it when it turns yeah, out it's wrong. He touched on this a little bit, but I wish they, uh, this would be it. When an expert says something and it gets down to your Facebook feed, CNN, even the New York Times, it has been through a vetting process, which is very, very important for journalists. They need to vet the process and the open internet, I shouldn't use that term, but the access to all this information via the internet. Well, and the internet, we to lo- be fair, is not always open. The yeah. internet experience in China or Russia is different right. than in America. But there's no vetting process of a journalist to tell us this is important, this is not. So I think it does fall on the journalist's point of view or, or on their table um, as much as it does the experts. And here's where I'm after. An expert says, like you said, this is our best available information. But when it comes down to you yep. and I, it says science, as if science was a person, science says this, this is now solved. And that's not fair to the experts. Right. On the other hand, the experts need to push that a little bit. They right. need to go in and they need to say, you were wrong about this. And I, I hate to say it, but I, I kind of like to see more libel lawsuits. Honestly, um, I'd like to see that there would be a curbing of journalists, not because I want them to be Christian, conservative, whatever, but because their job is just so darn important and I don't think they're doing their job very well. At the same time, it is on the citizen's uh, desk to turn off the noise. And reward good journalism and punish bad. I mean, by what you subscribe to. Yeah, And, and we've said this before, you know, advice... Um, be more attractive and seek out long form. Yep. Um, like I look at CNN. I can't. I can't estimate. Or I can't overestimate that. I yeah. think even I, it's so important. I'll click on CNN every day. Why? I just want to see a string of headlines just to make sure that I knew some somebody got bombed or this thing went through. Never read. Very rarely read the articles. Because they're just not that they're just not that good, right. and they're not that thoughtful, and it's not because they're liberal. It's just that's the way it is, and so you got to find ones, even if you disagree with them, that are going to have long form. And that's why I love. I personally, my favorite right now is the Atlantic. Yeah. And you know, a lot of this again is vocational. Do your job. Yep. Do your stinking job. And the one thing that I I wish he would have tackled but didn't, and this would be my main criticism. Um, experts also lobby. And I and wish they often he w- have to because experts are often supported yep. through public funding. And I and we very easily say, oh, it's the lobbyist culture and all the lot. No, you need politicians. And he makes this point. You need to have lobbyists so the politicians can listen to the experts and stuff. But what he didn't do is, I think, balance that out to say, who's paying these lobbyists? What is their motives and stuff? Right. And, and I don't know if he would have then called me a conspiracy theorist, but you know, I, I think that I think he would have done well to not necessarily hold another chapter, but to say there's some at fault here with the experts, and I would well, have put how the do lobbyists. experts separate their own economic viability, mm-hmm. real concerns for research grants and stuff like that. Um, and that's where I think, from acting in self-interest and how they do lobby. Yeah, and I think this is where journalists have have largely drop the ball here. Um, and I think that's unfortunate. 
Any closing thoughts, or otherwise we're, we're probably a little over time. Yep, I think we're over time, so you can, why don't you just close this out? Um, well, overall, I think a helpful book. I would highly recommend reading it. Um, I think it's, um, one, as Mike said, that has something to kind of indict each of us, but I think also things to help broaden our horizon. So uh, if you're looking to pick up a, a book to read, I, I would recommend The Death of Expertise. Um, hopefully we've summarized it fairly. Um, as we've gone through it, but in the meanwhile, uh, as you process information, as you seek to be a good citizen in a democratic republic, um, know that uh, the expert has come, uh, the very word himself, um, to free us from attempts at self-justification that might shut us off from other information or our neighbor, um, to lead us to know that there is infinitely more to be learned um, than we can ever learn. We have a, a, a God who transcends all understanding and the peace does. And so uh, go forth in the confidence that all t- that is necessary to make who you, who you, who you are and to give you enough has been done. Um, and uh, for the good of your neighbor, let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down Get with my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a tanker I set them up, another round I set them up, another round I set them up, another round One more round won't get me down